We're going to be starting in uh, Genesis chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 18. Okay. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Medai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Torgarma. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabteca. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is, the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabin, Naphtuim, Pathrusim, Kasluim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemurites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, 
and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shalef, Hazar Meveth, Jera, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obel, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Safar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse, and there confuse their language, so that, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. In case you were wondering why we were having other people read portions of the Bible for us during this series, all those names are exactly why. Thank you, Nick. You did that way, way better than I would have. All right, so we are obviously in Genesis chapter 9 and going through a little bit into verse chapter 11. Uh, we've been going really fast. I know it feels like through some of these like large portions of Scripture. Uh, but again, it kind of reinforces what our goal is um, as we're teaching this series, is that we don't want to find ourselves getting too distracted and like too down in the weeds and distracted by every single little detail. We could sit here and we could break down every single name of every single family and talk about where they went. Uh, but I think that would start to feel a little bit more luxury and we would lose sight of the bigger picture, which is how is God working through this period of our history? How was God at work as he was interacting with his creation? How was he working with mankind? How was it that we were, we were growing or, or growing closer to him or growing farther away from him? And so we get this, big, this kind of big picture of how um, mankind continued to grow and move uh, after the flood. And, and the easiest way for me to describe kind of the state of Noah's family as they came off of the ark is that this is kind of a picture of new creation. Right, God, God, if you think back to the beginning of Genesis, when God created Adam and Eve, you kind of had this first family. Everything was fresh. Everything was new. And then they kind of grew from there. And we kind of, like we said uh, last week, God kind of hit the reset button. We kind of took a step back. And now we're kind of getting this picture of how God is going to be at work uh, within his new creation. But, but here's the thing. As he, as he kind of reestablished with them last week, as he made his covenant with Noah, right? All the same things still apply 
to man. The same calling still applies to man. He said what? Have dominion over the earth. Multiply and fill it. And we're going to see that happening this week, right? We're going to start with a very small group of people, and by the end, we're going to have nations that are spreading all across the whole world. I do want to just, just right up front, just give a little context, just because uh, sometimes things can be kind of confusing. Well, it said that they were all over the earth in that, in that genealogy, and they all had their own languages and all that. And then we get to chapter 11, and they're speaking one language. Uh, oftentimes what the Bible does, and especially this happens within Genesis, is it'll give you kind of a big broad picture, and then it'll kind of go back and give you some of the details in the story that kind of follow that up, which is kind of what we're seeing in this genealogy from, from Noah's descendants down to the Tower of Babel. Within that is, with, within the Tower of Babel story is that kind of that beginning portion of that genealogy before they kind of spread out having their own languages around the world. So I just wanted to kind of establish that, just kind of, order of operations, so that we're all kind of looking at this the same way. So, so as we're looking at this new creation and how God's going to, um, again, call them to go out, fill the earth, multiply, have dominion over the earth, just like the orders he'd given to Adam and Eve, uh, there's one big difference at this point in this version of new creation. Who wants to take a stab at what the biggest difference is between Noah and his family and Adam and Eve when God officially established their calling? Anybody? What's the biggest difference between where Noah was and where Adam and Eve were when God first created them? The presence of sin, right? Because we have to realize when the flood came and when God wiped everybody off the face of the earth except for this family that he had saved, he didn't, he didn't eliminate sin. This isn't a complete reset with a brand new set of, of perfect humans who are ready to begin this whole process again. These are still descendants from the line of Adam and Eve, and just like we talked about last week, they are still, they are still you know, part of God's fulfillment of his promise to Adam and Eve that he would send a redeemer who would ultimately fix the problem of sin. The ark was not that redeemer, Noah was not that redeemer. Noah's family did not fix the problem of sin. Noah, Noah's family demonstrated what God's redemption looks like when he saves some out of their sin. But, but this, wasn't a, this wasn't a complete course correction and, and a wiping the slate clean sort of thing. And we see, that, we see that right away with Noah. It says he began to do the things that God called him to. He began to be a man of the soil and he started to work. But, but also, he grew vineyards, and, and with vineyards apparently comes wine, and with wine, with Noah and sin and wine comes drunkenness. And so we see immediately, immediately following this picture of new creation, we're reminded, don't forget, these people are still sinners. These people are still broken. These people are still depraved and unable to, to fight these urges, right? These people are still in need of salvation, and so what we see is that, that Noah, we're reminded again, even though Noah was chosen, even though Noah was called out, even though Noah found favor with God, as we had read, right? And even though Noah walked with God, he was not yet made perfect. He was not yet made sinless. And we are reminded of that right away. And I think that's important so that, so that we don't look back to all of these different uh, people that we're going to be studying as we continue on through the book of Genesis and throughout Scripture. Anybody that's not Jesus... They're not perfect. They're not, they're not the ideal, I want to be Noah. And I think, I think Scripture is very kind to us in that it reminds us here that, that Noah was not perfect. He was still broken. He was still fallen. And we see that. We see that sin is still absolutely present in his life. 
So Noah and his family are already stained by sin. Noah, Noah gets drunk, falls asleep naked in his tent, which, by the way, Nick, you were the only person who could read that because you always have to read those really fun sections of Scripture for us. Plug for Sunday nights if you haven't been coming on Sunday nights. Because uh, on Sunday nights, we, we sit around and we read the Bible. And, and inevitably, Nick is always the one who accidentally volunteers for some of the diciest, most awkward parts of the Bible to have to read. It's my favorite thing that Nick gets himself caught up in. Thanks again, Nick, for reading that for us. So come back, and I'm sure Nick will read something really uncomfortable for us at some point soon. Yeah, and that's why Nick started to read ahead. He, he can't escape it, though. It's coming. So, so but, let, but let's kind of let's set the stage here. Noah, drunk in stupor, falls asleep naked in his tent, and his son finds him. That's, that's really all the description we're given. You can read into this what sort of thing happens in this situation, but, but essentially his son comes into his tent and sees that his father's in this embarrassing state. And I read this as kind of decides to make light of the situation, right? What's his response? He walks in, sees that his, his dad's drunk, and, and instead of honoring him and trying to, trying to protect him from further embarrassment, what does he do? He says, I'm going to go get my brothers. They got to see this. This is hilarious. Right? This is essentially what he's doing. He's saying, oh, I've seen somebody who's, 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 in, a, who's in a weakened and embarrassing state, and I want to go make sure other people can come enjoy this with me in the same way that I am enjoying this. And what we find out is, He's in sin, and ultimately he's going to be cursed, and all of his family is going to be cursed, and it's going to affect generation after generation, nation upon nation upon nation, because of this sin that he demonstrates in this moment. And it makes us think, why is it sin? What, what, what about the way he treated his father in this moment is sin? Uh, Ephesians 5.4 came to mind. It says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Just this idea that, that God said, don't make light of bad situations. Don't, don't make these kind of rude jokes. Don't, don't, don't you know, belittle other people, right? And I think, I think this call that we're being reminded of in Ephesians is exactly what, what Ham is demonstrating poorly in that, in that he's, he's belittling his father, he's disrespecting his father, he's making light of the sin that he's found himself in. If, if, you, know, if you know anything about the way we want to be as a church and the way that we have been trying to be as a church is that, that we don't make light of the, the brokenness and the sinfulness of people that we come into contact with. It's very easy to say, oh, look, look at how broken they are. Look at how, look at how wicked they are. Look at how sinful they are. Look at the things that they're doing that I'm not. And I, we can use that as a, as a means of making ourselves feel, you know, more important or, or greater or, or more valuable. And, and I think what we're seeing with Ham here in this situation with Noah is that, that he's kind of using this as, a, as an opportunity to have fun, as an opportunity to be um, just, just too cavalier about the presence of sin, right? His father did something that was sinful, left himself in a situation that was embarrassing, but instead of honoring his father and trying to help him through that situation and, 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 and honor him in the way that his brothers ultimately did, right? And we'll get to them in just a second. Um, I just think that is so reflective of the way that we can sometimes treat people who are also in sin, in a sin that we may not find ourselves currently in. And how embarrassing it must be for them. Let us, let's make light of the sin that's present in their lives. Instead of honoring them and trying to, like we said a couple of weeks ago, um, 
when God looked at all of creation and saw how wicked everybody was and they only ever did evil always and their heart was only chasing after evil things. He didn't, he didn't abandon them. He didn't make light of them. He didn't, he didn't joke about their situation. Instead, he did something about it. Instead, he engaged with his creation. He engaged with the brokenness of the people and, and, he, and he continued to walk with his creation through their sinfulness. He didn't abandon them in that moment. And, and in a sense, that's what Ham does here. He he abandons his father. He leaves him in that state. And in fact, he wants to kind of double down on it and make other people also kind of stoop to his level and make light of their father's sin in the same way. And that's just, that's not, that is not what the people of God are meant to be like. We see, we see the honor that Shem and Japheth show to their father. And, 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 we, sh- and we, should, we should look at what they did. It's not just that they came in and covered him with a blanket, but they didn't even want to see. They, they came in backwards. They, they hid their eyes. They, they shielded themselves because they wanted to so, so show honor to their father. They wanted to so make sure that they were, they were demonstrating this sense of, I guess, mercy and kind of a picture of grace in that we know he's done this thing that's embarrassing. We know he's in in a weakened state. We know that he's done this sinful thing, but, but we still want to treat him with dignity and value and respect. And all these things that, that we as the church now ought to be doing for those who are in sin as well. Yes, they are in sin. Yes, they are far from God. Yes, they are doing things that, that we may not approve of or we would not want to be true of our lives, but we aren't making light of their situation. We aren't pushing them away because of their sin. We aren't doubling down and trying to have other people come in and jeer at their weakness. Instead, we want, to try to, we want to try to honor them. We want to try, to try to value them. We want to try to show them grace as a means of demonstrating what grace has been shown to us. I mean, Jesus demonstrated this for us. I, I thought of John chapter 8. I'm going to start in verse, verse 2. Uh, it describes this instance in, in Jesus' ministry. It says, Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the, mit, in, in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. I don't want to get down into the details. Like, what did he write in the sand? What did he write on the ground? That doesn't matter. That's not the point or we would know. But in this moment where a person has been caught doing a thing that is sinful, what does Jesus do? He values her. In a sense, he protects her from the jeering and the devaluing of all the people around her. And then in the end, he gives her a hopeful message of grace and leaves, lets her go. This is what it should look like for those of us who are in Christ. This is what it should look like when we interact with those around us who are in sin. Because unlike Jesus, we are also in sin with them. We, I've said this so many times, this whole, we are good and they are bad. We have Jesus, they do not. So we are valuable and they have no value. 
There's no we, they, us, them. There is none of this kind of talk. It is all of us who have been stained by sin and are broken. And some of us, to the glory of God, have been saved. But we are equally valuable. We have the same uh, image and likeness of God within us that they do. Just like we've been saying ever since we began in Genesis. And in this moment, in this moment where, where... Noah's son has dishonored him and tried to bring his brothers in to kind of also dishonor him. We see this demonstration, this modeling of of grace and honor and respect and concern for their father in such a way that they end up being blessed by him. And and ultimately, as we see this genealogy play out, all of the sons of Ham become all of these nations who, yes, they may build up for a little while, but are ultimately going to be overthrown and, and serving all the sons of Ham's brothers. And we could get into all of the the details of, you know, what was happening here in this area. And we could talk about, well, this son's name was Egypt, and you could see this nation, and Assyria. And and we we could sit down, and we could, and that may be an interesting discussion to kind of go through some of these names in your community groups this week, and spend some time looking at those, and just finding out, you know, kind of where all these different nations ended up, and kind of what played out in their histories Um, beyond this point. But but what matters is we see God, through Noah, honoring this grace that is demonstrated by Shem and Japheth. And we see this punishment that's brought upon Ham's children, this curse that ultimately affects entire nations that's brought upon Ham because of the disrespect and the devaluing of of the person in his father who was found to be in sin. And so, so then we get this, this picture going forward of all these nations that begin to spread out and go all over the place. And, and yes, they do, like I said, build up into all these great nations. And there are all these sorts of things that are happening all around the world, which, which kind of gets kicked off as we get into chapter 11 here in just a second. But, but again, even in this moment where, where this sin takes place in Ham's life, we, we still believe that God was at work in that. And this was part of God's plan. And God was sovereignly orchestrating all of these interactions because ultimately he needed to raise up these great nations so that he could overthrow them and establish his people as their own nation so that we could have this continued line from Adam to Noah all the way to Christ who would ultimately be that redeemer that had been promised all along. Each step along the way, even in these moments where there is sin and there is punishment and there is wrath and it's, and it's nation overthrowing nation because of the sin of their father hundreds, thousands of years before, in each of these instances, it's still God at work. It's still God building up nations to overthrow other nations in a miraculous way. So then as we get into chapter 11... And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Um, we kind of get this snapshot of what it looked like right before all of these nations spread all over the world. Uh, we, we, see, we see that man, again, like we said, after new creation, sin was still present. They were still um, fallen and broken and prideful and desiring to make much of themselves and desiring to demonstrate their own power and their own rule and their own authority over creation not in the way that God had said to have dominion over the earth, but in a way that was going to bring glory and fame to themselves, right? We see, we see all the people of the world kind of huddled together, one nation, all unified, saying, let's build a tower that reaches all the way up to heaven. You know what? Let's just, let's just, go, let's just go become gods ourselves. 
Let's, let's demonstrate just how amazing we are as humanity. Let's, let's, let's show off this great power and this great ability that we have. All the while, forgetting that it was, was God who created them. It was God who gave them all these resources. It was God who gave them creation to have dominion over. And instead, saying, we, we reject that we need God. We can, we can build our, our tower all the way up to heaven ourselves. We can get ourselves all the way there. We don't, we don't need him. We don't need his help. We can take care of this all on our own. So in their pride, they decided to show what they could build for their own glory. And so, so they say, we're going to build this huge tower. We're going to all come together. We're going to build these huge bricks, and we're going, to, we're going to go all the way up to heaven. And God sees this, and he says, they are capable of so many amazing things that will pull them farther and farther and farther away. They are, they are capable of, of exceedingly more increasing sin. They are incapable of increasing, increasingly more pride building up and more glory that they're pulling toward themselves. And he sees this, right? And he says, we ha again, just like he said when they were in sin right before the flood, he said, I see this sin that's present and I need to do something about it. I need to affect, my, my, my desire was not for them to all come together in one place and build up this huge tower for themselves where they could make much of themselves and bring glory to themselves and say, look at what we've done. Look at this amazing thing that we did without the help of God. Their call was to, to multiply and, and spread out and have dominion over the whole earth. And so God says, I need to do something about that. Well, really, he says, we need to do something about that. So in case you're wondering about you know, if there are still references to God as Trinity and God as um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is a demonstration of God still being in community within himself. And he says, we should go down and we should confuse their languages. We should spread them out. We shouldn't leave them in this sinful state that they're in. And this is a continual thing that we see with God. He sees us in our brokenness. He sees us in our pride or our weakness or whatever sin we may find ourselves in in that moment, right? And he says, I'm going to do something about it. He doesn't leave us in it. He doesn't just let us sit there, become more and more sinful, and wipe us off the face of the earth. He could. He'd be right to. But he didn't. He sees this sinful state, and he says, we're going to do something about this. We're going to step in. We're going we're to confuse their languages. God, God creates more global diversity, and he spreads the nations out all over the earth. And, and at the moment, when these people are all sitting here trying to build this thing together, this may seem like a mean thing that God is doing, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to, he's confusing all the languages. He's breaking up all these relationships that we already had, and he's forcing us to go all these different ways. He's, he's forcing us to abandon this project that we've been working on for so long. And it seems like a mean thing, but really, it's, it's God giving them the push that it takes to kind of get them doing the things that they'd already been called to do. Um... There have probably been times in your life where you've been supposed to do a thing, but you just can't make yourself do it. You don't want to do the thing, and it takes some sort of push. Maybe it's, maybe it's when you were a kid and it was a parent you know, threatening some sort of punishment, and you're like, okay, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. Uh, maybe, it was, maybe it was, I need to get out and go do this one thing. For, for me, I still always go back to when we started as a church, and it's like, we think we're supposed to start a church. We think we're supposed to start a church. We think we're supposed to start a church. Maybe we'll just take our time. We'll figure out how to do this. And eventually we'll go start a church. And God said, no, go start a church in two weeks. Like literally, the pastor at our old church said, why don't you go start your church in two weeks or you're just not going to do it. So go. 
And, and in a moment, that can seem kind of mean, like, get out. And we could take it that way. But at the same time, it's God saying, no, no, you are called to do this thing. You are called to go plant this church. Go. And this is kind of what, this is kind of what we're seeing in, here at the Tower of Babel is that they're building all this up, but they're not doing the thing that God called them to do. And they're going to continue to just sit there and bring more glory to themselves and continue to live in sin, continue to live in sin, making much about themselves and leaving God out of it. And he says, no, go. I'm fixing this. I'm changing something. I'm going to affect the outcome of what you're doing so that you begin to fulfill the call that I have for you. And so God confuses their language, and now we get that, the rest of that genealogy that we just read, that Nick so eloquently read every single name. Beautifully. We see, we see this spreading out across the earth. And, and, and what's amazing is, at this point, we've read a couple of genealogies up to this point, but each time we've read a genealogy, we're still basically seeing how God is interacting with all of his creation. When we get to the next thing, God's going to interact with all of his creation, all of his creation. After this genealogy and a little bit of what we'll get into next week, from here on out, God stops dealing with all of his creation. He starts focusing on one family. And he's going to start interacting with one family pretty much for the duration of Genesis, but for sure for the rest of, and even for the rest of the Old Testament. A lot of this begins to be God working through one family. This is an interesting transition because it's like the rest of creation kind of begins to multiply and spread out. And we just hear, they're going all over the place. But God begins to really focus in on the next steps as he interacts with one particular family. And that's the family, ultimately, that, that was going to bring the rescuer. That's the family that was going to bring the redeemer. That's the family that was going to bring the reconciler. So we talked about how, how the flood didn't remove sin. It didn't wipe away sin entirely. It didn't fix any of the real problem. It didn't fix that. It just, it just kind of course corrected us and demonstrated God's wrath and demonstrated God's mercy. But as we move forward, as God spreads us out around the world, this is kind of the last time that, that all of creation was together with one voice. And then God sends them out and he's going to begin to do the work within one family to bring about the rescuer, to bring about the redeemer, to bring about the reconciler. And so this is the last time that all of mankind at that point spoke the same language. The next time uh, after, after the redeemer comes, after Jesus comes, and after he, he, he pays for our sin with his life, after he after he accomplishes what must be accomplished, the sacrifice to overcome sin and death. He leaves his church waiting and then he sends back, and I forgot to put this verse in the, in, on the screen, but it's Acts chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. There's this moment where the church is all gathered together praying. And then, and then there's this loud rushing wind sound and these tongues of fire come down. It says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. At the sound of the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So at the Tower of Babel, God confused the languages and sent everybody out around the world. But after Christ... After the coming of the Holy Spirit, that was the moment 
where he began to bring us back together. He began to give us one language again. He gave us this message of the gospel that was to go out to all nations, right? That was the call. Go into all nations and make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, right? The whole mission was always for the nations, even though for a while, as we're about to see, he's going to work with one family for a while. When that rescuer comes, when that redeemer comes, when that reconciler comes, it's not just that he's reconciling us to God, but he's bringing the nations that he had cast out, that he'd spread out all around the world. He's bringing them back together. And in a very literal sense in Acts chapter 2, he's bringing their language back together as a demonstration of, I'm the one who spread you out. I'm the one who confused these languages. I'm also the one who can bring you back together. And that is an amazing, amazing thing that the Holy Spirit does through the church, is that he gives us the language that we need to spread the gospel around the world. Every week we get up here and we pray for somebody else who's serving outside of our church somewhere else in the world. Sometimes that's like across the street. Sometimes that's somewhere else in our country. This morning we were praying for somebody who's in China. But, but we, have this, we have this global mission as the church to see people saved and come to know the amazing salvation that Jesus makes available to us by his sacrifice. And so, so when we see God doing these things where he's spreading out around the world, he's doing it, he's, he's basically setting up his own victory, right? He's, he's saying, look, I can spread you out and I can also save you. And I think it's an amazing thing for us to realize that, that as we, just like we said earlier, as we value those people who are in sin and recognizing that we are also those people, as we, value, as we value other humans as being made in the image of God and we see the brokenness and the presence of sin in their life, we also can look back and reflect on the fact that God not only has filled us with his Holy Spirit and saved us, but he has given us the language that we need to communicate to them the grace of our amazing God. And that through that language and through that grace, that is the way that we are going to fulfill the main mission that he's been given to us. First, to multiply and to fill the earth and have dominion over it. But now, as the church, we've been given a second mission, which is to go out to all nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do all the things that he has commanded us to do. It's an amazing calling, and it's an amazing thing that's made possible because of our God and the grace that he has shown us through his son. Let's pray.